0: The sermon text for today is Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, and it'll be on page 823 in your pew Bible. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, and with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly I say to you he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven. So is it it is not the will of my Father in, in who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is precious to us to hear you describe your people as little ones and children. It is so kind of you to use such a tender terms to describe us even when we are in our sin. And that wonder of your grace to us is a great comfort to us as we now look at this passage and, and think together about the, the teaching that you offer us here about, about sin and, and what you want our relationship with sin to be like and what you don't want it to be like. And we would not have the strength in ourselves to, to be honest about these things unless we knew that you loved us and were tender-hearted and kind toward us. So we thank you for strengthening us here at the front end. How we pray for your spirit's ministry now to make us wise and to strengthen our hearts in the grace that you have for your people. And now we pray that you would beautify your bride now and act to save. Because I believe that there would be some today ensnared in sin, dead in trespasses and sin, whom you have brought to be here in worship this morning. And I believe that you are willing and ready and able to save. And so I ask you to issue a saving call to them out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And we pray in your name. Amen. Well, friends, we're back in uh, Matthew 18. And uh, uh, what we've uh, said so far about Matthew 18 is that in this Chapter What Jesus is doing is he is transitioning. He's been teaching about his cross and his mission in chapters 16 and 17 to build his church by his cross. And then when we get into chapter 18, we've got a concentrated block of teaching uh, from our Lord in which he is describing the character of the community that he intends his cross to beget. And we've been thinking about how our Lord's teaching on this point that all grows out of what, he is, uh, what we've seen Him teach about His cross and its implications in chapter 16 and 17. We've been thinking, there have been two questions that have been guiding our thinking about this, this question. What's the church supposed to look like if Jesus begets that church by its cross? So what is what are those two questions that, that have kind of been the touchstones? And the first question is this, if Jesus Christ had to, had to die for our sins, for the sins of everyone who is in his church, then what should the church look like? If everyone who is in the church that Jesus builds is somebody for whom the cross is an absolute inescapable necessity, then what is that going? To, what are the implications of that for what the church looks like? And the second question is related to it, but different, and that is, what is the church supposed to look like not only, if not only did Jesus have to die for the sins of those called into the church, but if he wanted to? Those questions change the way we think about the inside of the church. And the first answer we saw Jesus give uh, two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, from uh, verses 1 and 4, and then we had a sidebar in Galatians 5. But remember, I told you, we never left Matthew 18. The first answer we saw is that in building his church by His cross, Jesus means to free us from our pride, for love. And then this morning... Uh, as we look at verses 5 through 14, what we're going to see is that Jesus declares that, that the church he builds by his cross will be defined by a passion, a rising and widening passion for the pursuit of holiness. And so friends, to the extent that our hearts are gripped uh, by the, the, those two great gospel facts, right, that Jesus had to die for our sins number one. And number two, that he wanted to. To the extent that our hearts are gripped by those two gospel facts, guess what's going to happen according to Jesus? Our lives are going to be increasingly defined by taking Jesus' side in opposition against our sin. But we do that in hope and in gratitude. And there will be in our life individually, and in our life corporately, this rising and widening passion for the pursuit of holiness. And we're going to look at that this morning under three headings. There's three kind of a threefold urgency that I think Jesus has about sin in this passage that we're going to consider together. And the first is uh, our vulnerability to sin. And the second is sin's gravity. And the third is sin's vulnerability. So our vulnerability to sin, sin's a true gravity, and then uh, sin's vulnerability. So let's think first uh, about our vulnerability to sin. And there's, there's two dimensions to our vulnerability to sin that Jesus emphasizes in this passage. There's a vulnerability to sin that we experience from the outside and also from within. And friends, Jesus Christ wants us to know and to understand and to feel our vulnerability to sin this morning. Notice who he's talking to here. He is speaking to his disciples, which means that all of his warnings here, all of his exhortations here are aimed at people inside the church. Okay. So, Think first about our vulnerability from the outside. Friends, Jesus Christ knows and understands our vulnerabilities to sin better than we do. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that, honestly? Or when you read this passage, I mean, when when his words were ringing in your ears, did you think, well, that's a little bit of an overstatement? And he knows your vulnerability to sin better than you do. And the call of this passage, the call of Jesus Christ through this passage is trust him. Don't trust yourself. Trust his evaluation. Don't trust yourself. Don't, don't, don't rest in your assessment of your vulnerability to sin. Rest in his. And so the first thing he emphasizes is that we are vulnerable to sin from the outside. And what what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that Jesus is very realistic here. He describes that there are influences and that there are temptations that originate and impinge upon us from the outside. Look at verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. In other words, there's somebody out there, outside of the disciple. The disciple is the little one, this term of endearment that Jesus uses. Whoever causes the little one, uh, one of these little ones, to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck, And to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And then he continues with the same idea in verse 7. Woe, look at the way Jesus thinks about the world. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying to his disciples, he's giving them a dose of reality. He's giving them wisdom about the world, that it is not a spiritually neutral or safe environment. There are temptations in the world, influences in the world that impinge upon the disciples, to which the disciples, his disciples are vulnerable. Do you see that? To which they're vulnerable. And it's very helpful to see that Jesus does not have a vision for his disciples of living, retreating from the world. This is very important to see this. Because this is, this is ha- so often how, how Christians think about the world. They think, okay, the world's full of temptations, therefore it must be God's will for me to withdraw from the world. And that is not what Jesus says here. He, there is no vision here of a disciple bubble. Do you see that? What Jesus wants to do is to make us wise about the world. He doesn't want us to retreat because of our vulnerability to sin. He wants us to walk wisely in the world. So that when Jesus says that it is necessary that temptations come, he is saying not that sin is inevitable. He is saying that temptation in this fallen world is inescapable. It's inescapable. And Jesus knew that from his own experience, right? It is necessary, verse 7. Jesus knew this necessity from his own experience because he was tempted in all ways, right? The writer of the Hebrews says, yet without sin, but never succumb to sin. It is necessary that temptation, temptations come. He knew that. And his logic runs in this way, that if this is the inescapable reality of the world, then his disciples, us, we must be equipped with wisdom. But not only wisdom, Jesus does something so amazing uh, in this passage. He he talks to us straight about the world. This is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible. It's because it's so realistic. It's so true. Listen, you can drive down I-4 just between Orange Camp Road exit and Saxon Boulevard, and you can know just from the billboards that the world is full of temptations. It's not safe on the freeway, friends. You can look in the mirror and see your own heart and know your vulnerability to sin. If you have your eyes open in this world, you know that the world is full of temptations. But Jesus doesn't just leave us there with that wisdom. He makes three astonishing pledges to us in this passage. He gives these amazing promises to us. This is how he starts, friends. First, he promises his affection to us in our vulnerability to sin. Do you see that? Look at the terms of endearment that he uses to describe us. Verse 5, one such child, right? He's talking about even even an individual disciple, one such child. And he's just, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in verses 1 through 4, he's commending those who are childlike, as his disciples, one such child. And then again in verses 6 and 10, he speaks of his disciples as one of these little ones. These are tender descriptions. You see that? And they're all the more wonderful because in each case they apply, Jesus applies them in a description that assumes that those little ones have succumbed to sin. Was very comforting to me this week. It's a wonderfully strong and enduring affection, which by definition does not depend on our perfection. He doesn't despise us. I want you to hear this. When Jesus is talking to us, frankly, about our vulnerability to sin, friends, he is not despising us for our vulnerability. He is actually prizing us in our vulnerability. Do you believe that about Jesus, friend? You believe that he can talk to you very straight and directly about and lay bare the full extent of your vulnerability to sin and at the same time not be despising you as he is telling you the truth about that? I hope you do because that's the only Jesus who really exists. He always wants to talk to you about your sin because he wants to get you saved. He wants to rescue you. That's why he talks to you about it. So, the first pledge that Jesus makes is this one of affection. When he's talking, this is how he begins his discussion of sin, friends. You've got to see this. This is how Jesus frames his whole discussion, all his warnings, all his exhortations to us about holiness. He's framing that whole discussion as he's talking to his disciples in terms of his affection, his bond, his connection with us as his people. But it doesn't end there with affection because it goes even deeper. The second thing he pledges is His identification with us in our vulnerability. Look at verse 5. I don't know if it, I don't know if you made your socks roll up and down, but it should have. It's really shocking. Whoever, read your Bible slowly and you will grow because your jaw will be dragging on the floor all the time like this. Whoever receives one such child in my name. He's talking about disciples here. Receives me. You see what he's doing? He's identifying himself with every single one of his disciples. Jesus is saying here that he... Takes personally everything that happens to every single one of his disciples. Did you hear that? Jesus is saying that he takes personally, he identifies. Personally, with everything that happens to every single one of his disciples. And there, of course, is a very chilling flip side of that uh, identification in verse 6. If you're one of those, who causes one of his disciples? You know, this is the opposite of receiving. It would be causing one of his disciples instead of welcoming. You're causing one of his disciples to sin. Jesus, notice how how uh, chillingly he uh, describes what uh, should befall that uh, that person in verse six. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him. Now, think about this. Think about what this looks like as a movie. It would be better for him to have a great millstone. Do you know how big a millstone is? A fast, Google it. Fastened, not now. Have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That would be better. Jesus, that's an astonishing pledge of his identification with us in our vulnerability. He's promising that he will take us seriously and what befalls us seriously. And that leads into the third promise that he makes here that is just astonishing, which of course is his protection, right? His opposition, his passionate opposition to whatever and whomever harms us. Did you hear that? Do you see what verse 6 means? Verse 6 means that he personally, the king of glory, is promising that he identifies completely with whatever befalls any single one of his disciples, not just the apostles, but every single one of of his disciples across the ages, every single Christian. Now that has stunning implications because I want you to think, about the scenario that Jesus is describing in verse 6, right? Notice how verse 6 begins. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So Jesus is describing a scenario in which a Christian has been led into sin. They're not off the hook. They sinned. But they were led into that sin. And Jesus, what does Jesus do? Does he say, okay, well, you didn't follow the rules. I'm done with you. Notice that Jesus not only doesn't walk away from the disciple who has sent, and there is hope here. I mean, there are some of you who are in this room who feel so guilty, like you have gone over the line with Jesus, and you have serious doubts this morning when you came into this sanctuary. You have serious doubts about the future prospects of your ability to be welcomed and received by Jesus Christ. Now, friend, you need to recognize that those thoughts do not come from Jesus. He is saying here in verse 6 that he is going to protect you He identifies with you. He is jealously opposed to whatever has harmed you or whomever has harmed you. He has not walked away from you in your sin. And in fact, he has promised that he will take the full justice and righteousness of the situation into account, that he's got it, guys. He understands what we can so often not how much of this was me and how much of, of this was that or them that is so confusing it's not for us to parse out it's in Jesus' hands and if it's in Jesus' hands guess what there is no room what he's doing is he's taking away from us in that pledge in verse 6 in spite of all our vulnerabilities, and he's saying "Don't, don't despair I've got it And he's also saying, you have no right to be bitter. This is so liberating. This liberates us from both despair and bitterness because some of us have suffered greatly under other people's sins. And the temptation when that has been our experience, when we have been actually led into sin by others, sure, we are responsible for our part, but friends... There are scenarios in which we have suffered because of influences and temptations that have come to us from the outside. And friends, the temptation, when that has been our experience, is to lock down in bitterness toward that person or situation. And Jesus is freeing us from that because he's got it. He's got the justice. He's got the protection for us. Keep moving toward Christ That's our vulnerability from the outside. But you know what? It doesn't end there. Oh, I wish it did. Oh, how I wish, you know, the fleshly part of me, which is quite a lot of real estate. Oh, Jesus, I wish it would just end there so I could spend my life saying, yeah, you know, that person and that situation, the problem's over there. The problem's in the world. But you know what? It's not what Jesus does. I'm grateful for his realism about the fact that sin is complicated, and our relationship to sin is deeply complicated. But I'm also grateful for his forthrightness in confronting my heart and your heart directly, because what he does in verses 8 through 9 is he begins to talk, very frankly, about our vulnerability to sin from the inside. The inside. We're not mainly victims of temptation that comes from the outside. Friends, we are mainly our own victims. And that's where Jesus turns in verses 8 through 9. Listen to him again. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin. You see, now it's gotten personal. Not, Not personal in the sense of us being victims, which is what he was talking about before, but now in the sense of us being being the perpetrators, we being the ones that the temptation to sin that we succumb to comes from within us, saying if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Friends, Jesus wants you to feel, to know, and to understand that your greatest vulnerability to sin is not found outside of you, but inside of you. This is why, if you have a strategy in life where you think that the way to pursue holiness is to just set up this electrified fence that keeps the culture at bay, you're naive. Because no matter where you place that fence, guess what? You're always inside of it. And what's inside of you is your heart, friend. Your heart is the problem. Not the movies. Not the billboards. Those are not the problem. It's your heart. It's your heart. And Jesus wants us to be realistic about that. You see what he's doing is he's... He's in talking to us about sin. See, what we want to do is we want to be crusaders. We want to be self-righteous crusaders against other people's sin. Oh, that feels great. It's just not real. No, what He wants us to be is repentant infantrymen against our own sin. The greatest... that befalls us befalls us from the inside and we are the greatest obstacles, obstacles to our own personal holiness. And friends, you'll never, ever, ever be able to face the reality of that apart from those three pledges that we talked about. That Jesus has, he frames everything that he ever says about sin to his people in terms of those three pledges, his affection, his identification with us, and his jealous protection of us. That, that, that you keep those things in mind and before you, that those, those are what shape Jesus' teaching about sin and warnings about sin. Friends, then you will be safe at, enough to be able to face the reality of your own sin from within. If you don't believe those things about the gospel, you will never be honest about the ways in which you are personally vulnerable and and even succumbing to sin in your own life. So that's the first big theme that Jesus addresses, which is our vulnerability to sin. But the second one that he deals with is sin's true gravity. And this is a very important thing for us because I do think that, I do think that in general we are naive about this. And we're very much in a spiritual sense, like those people who buy the baby alligator or the baby python, and think and we imagine. I don't know where we get this. It doesn't come from truth. That we can keep it in the bathtub for a while. But you know those fangs grow, and it gets hungry. Now, we have to face, when we're talking about sin's true gravity, there are a lot of opinions. If we're honest about it, there's a lot of opinions in our uh, brains and hearts that assess the gravity of sin. Some of those opinions come from our culture, and we're exposed to them in movies and in books and on the news and in the newspaper about what sin is. And whether it's really important or serious, whether it's even a relevant category. Some of it comes from our own self-justifying hearts. Some of it comes uh, through the influence of relationships that we've had. And it's a real mishmash in our lives. Some of it comes from our own history because there have been certain sins that in certain seasons or certain temptations in certain seasons of our lives that we have not been particularly vulnerable to. And so we just assume that tomorrow will always be like yesterday. Friends, all of those are very dangerous places to be because there's only one person whose opinion about the true gravity of sin matters. It's Jesus Christ. It's only His qualifications. He's the only one who's qualified to talk to us about the true gravity of sin. And so what he's calling his disciples to do uh, here in this situation that Matthew's recording in, eight, in Matthew 18, and then what he's calling each of us to do by the Spirit as his people today is to trust him and his evaluation of sin's true gravity more than we trust ourselves or any other possible source or opinion. Now, that's very radical, because that means you're going to go against the grain even often of your own conscience. The issue here is the same as the issue with respect to our vulnerability. Jesus Christ knows and understands sin's true gravity better than we do. And you either agree with that and live according to that, or you disagree with that. What is sin anyway? Well, sin is an offense against the majesty of God committed by men. who are we, if that's, if, that's a, if that's a working definition of sin, Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That what's implicated in every sin is the glory of God. It is some act or omission by a human being made in the image of God that, that, um, that despises or disregards or belittles God's true glory. And what that means is that God himself is always the offended party in any sin. He is the most aggrieved party. And that means, friends, that it is never the place of men to tell God what he ought to think or feel about sin. He's the injured party. If if somebody came up to you and punched you in the nose... It is not my place to come up to you as the victim of that nose punch and say, you know what, that's really not a big deal. I might get punched in the nose if I said that to you. And of course, that's very obvious. Why? Because you're the injured party. And yet we spend so much energy second-guessing God and telling God through our indifference or our disregard of his word or our, our unspoken sense, you know, that's kind of overkill there. That's exaggeration, that's hyperbole. I mean, really, you want me to cut my eye out when we know that's figurative language? But we still make friends with sin and we flirt with it. What we're essentially saying to God is, we understand this better than you do. But you know, that's just crazy. And who is Jesus Christ? What's so interesting about this, his qualification to speak to us about the true gravity of sin is he is the God man. He knows from the inside what sin means to God. He knows it. He's qualified to talk to us about that. He knows sin's offense against the majesty of God from the inside. Do you ever think about that? But he's also a man. So he is also perfectly qualified to address men in the name of God, about the ruin of sin upon men. He is perfectly qualified to warn us about the gravity of sin. He knows what sin means to God, and he alone knows what sin means to men. And so the Jesus Christ who addresses us this morning, each one of us from Matthew 18 is perfectly qualified to address us about this. Friends, I want you to think about your sins and Jesus Christ's relationship to them and what he understands about them. Do you know what? He has gone where your envy leads. He's already been there. He's gone where your anger and your temper is headed. He's already been to the end of it, friends. He's been and already gone to where your infidelity has gone, where your sexual immorality is headed. He's been there. He's already gone to where your lust is carrying you. He's already gone to where your lying, my lying, my deceitfulness, where it ends up. Friends, he's already been there. That's what Calvary was. The Jesus Christ who addresses us this morning by the Spirit from this text has been through the cross where he knew experientially what sin meant to God and what sin meant to men. He's already been there. And he's come back and now he's standing forth this morning from this living and active word and he is calling us to trust him when he tells us that there is nothing, there is no loss, there is no sacrifice that is too much to pay. He understands it better than we do how does he measure it he measures sins gravity the way we know how he thinks about its gravity is by listening very carefully to what he tells us to do in response to sin and it's a very hostile posture do you see that he wants us to to adopt a posture of hostility to the sin in our lives Don't let that get muted out by the figurative parts of the language in verses 8 and 9. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. In other words, take sin so seriously. Now, he's not telling you to amputate your hand or your foot. But he is saying, treat sin like it's deadly, like no amount of it is safe, like it can't be managed don't treat sin like it can be managed. Don't treat it like it's safe. No amount of it is safe. And there, there is no amount of it that's safe, and there is no type of sin that's safe. Right? Do you see that? I mean, sure, with a hand and the foot, you think, okay, I could get in a lot of trouble. I could murder people with my hands or my feet. Right? I could steal stuff with my hands or my feet. Yeah, okay, well, I don't do any of that. I'm just, you know, I'm actually a pretty good person. I don't ever hit anybody. I, I don't go to bad places. But you notice how he talks about the eye in verse 9? The eye is the lamp of the body. That does not mean that's where the light comes from. What that means is that the eye is, and where the eye goes reveals what's inside the eye is the window to the heart and you know what's so chilling about verse 9 verse 9 says that there is a path to hell that somebody who outwardly outwardly looks like a good person can be on Because with your eye, you can lust. With your eye, you can covet. With your eye, you can harbor bitterness and hatred that you never act on outside your own thought life and your own heart. And no one would ever know it except God. If that's true... Sin must be much more serious than we think, and God, therefore, must be much more holy than we think. So, the question becomes, are you going to trust your own gut instinct on those questions or Jesus? There are only two choices. There's no type of sin that is safe. There is no amount of sin that is safe. This is why John Owen I still unrepentant man crush on the Puritan John Owen. I'll say it again. People don't talk like this anymore. He says it very simply, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's very simple. It's a predator. We know this from what the Lord has said. What the Lord has said to Adam, what the Lord has said to Cain be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's nothing romantic or sympathetic about it. I kept trying to think this week about illustrations. How do I, what, what are the illustrations? I mean, I, I'm right here with you. I am so spiritually naive about this. You know, there's certain sins, besetting sins, that I work on, that I pay attention to, that I have gotten into trouble with over and over and over again that grieve me, that grieve the Lord, and I, I go after them. There's vast territories of things that I don't go after. And there's a naivete that I have to repent of that is really foolish and very dangerous. And I kept trying to think this week, how do I illustrate this? And, you know, what kept coming to mind is that, you know, what kind of relationship does a harbor seal? What, I mean, what's the relationship potential? Let's say you're a harbor seal and you meet a great white shark. What's the upside relational potential there? Well, for the shark, great. Do you know sin is far more deadly than a great white shark is to a harbor seal? We don't believe it. Forgive us, Lord. We we don't believe that at the foot of the cross friends forgive us lord And I'm not talking about other people's sin I'm talking about my sin What's the church going to look like? If Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God, had to die for sins, then what should the inside of the church look like? It should be a place where holiness is treasured, where Jesus' opinions about sin are, are, are weighed heavy, not in a legalistic, let's retreat, let's set up a, a fence, and let's be our own savior kind of way. Absolutely not. But friend, do you live like you've been rescued from sin, or do you live like you love sin? Do you live like Jesus Christ has come down and pulled you off of the bottom of the darkest ocean and brought you into the light? Or do you live like you like it down there? Sin is a predator. And the problem is it doesn't often look that way to us. It doesn't often sound that way to us. But friends, make no mistake, it's always aiming at something way bigger than we realize. Sin is always going to lie to us about three things. It's going to lie to us about its true size. It's going to lie to us about its badness. And it's always going to lie to us about God's goodness. Always. Three lies. Sin will always lie to us about its true size, and you know this from your own experience. I mean, think about it, and you know it from the Bible. Do you think David, when he was walking on the, on the roof of the palace in the afternoon, do you think he was thinking, wow, I think that I, I shouldn't look at Bathsheba bathing because I will, there will be a murder in my household, I will lose uh, sons, there will be a coup, Do you think that's what he thought? Do you think sin was planning that? Of course it was. David was naive. Think about the 9-11 hijacker, Muhammad Atta, who was the lead hijacker. One day he walks into a hardware store and he buys a box cutter, which can go through security. The next day, he buys an airline ticket. Now, to the outward eye, nothing extraordinary, but he knew what his purpose was, correct? Friends, sin is always going to aim at the utmost, not content, simply with anything less or short of than the complete ruination of your relationship with God, where it wants you to end up, and it will work toward this goal in any way that it can. It is your utter ruination. You're being thrown into the hell of fire. That's what sin's goal is. And I'm not just talking about sexual sin. I'm not just talking about pornography here. I'm not just talking about sexual immorality. Friends, I'm talking about things as seemingly safe as envy and lying and stealing. Because, you know, Judas, do you think Judas was thinking when he started to pilfer coins out of the money box and the disciples? The, you know, because he was the treasurer of the disciples. And John tells us in John chapter 12 that that Judas was a pilferer, that he stole money out of the money box. Do you think Jesus, I mean, do you think Judas was thinking as he started to take those first coins that, oh, this is going to lead to my betrayal of the incarnate Son of God and His crucifixion? Of course not. Why not? Because sin was always lying about its true size to Judas. So don't let sin lie about its true size to you, Friends. Don't do that. It's never just a spark. You know, there's a forest fire in every spark if you're not careful. And if you don't respect the danger of a single spark, you will find yourself in the midst of a forest fire. Take it seriously. Sin will always lie to us about its badness, just like the serpent did to Eve in Genesis 3. Not that bad. Not that big. Not that bad. And it will always lie to us about the goodness of God. He's not worth whatever sacrifice you have to pay to not engage in this, to not respond to this temptation. God's not worth it. He can't be trusted. The whole reason you're in this situation is because God's not good. Friends, Friends, you have got to fight those lies. Sin's gravity is measured by the hostility that Jesus calls us to show to it. So are you hostile to the sin in your life, or are you reconciled? Is there a DMZ in your, in your soul where you say, okay, well, uh, I'll give over. You've just kind of written off certain areas of your life. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's worry. Those th- friends, those things can destroy you You think your worry is manageable? You think your envy is manageable? You're just going to keep it in a box? You have no idea what that could produce if you don't fight it in the power of the gospel. It could become murder. Friends, be careful. But you know, for all of the hostility... That sin has toward us for all of its predatory nature, all of its gravity, and all of our vulnerability. To sin. Here's the amazing thing in this passage: is that Jesus ends by emphasizing sin's vulnerability, and that's our third point. There is so much hope. This is this is what I love about the gospel. You know, the gospel is the gospel's beauty triumphs in the midst of, and not apart from, very dark, hard-edged reality. The gospel is not fantasy land. The gospel is not the fiction isle of the universe. The gospel, friends, is the non-fiction aisle of the universe. There is rescue. There is vulnerability to sin. Sin, Jesus, says very clearly, is vulnerable. This is the whole premise of his ministry, right? Is that sin is vulnerable. It's it's the foundation of all of Jesus' teaching. It's the foundation of all of his healings, all of his works, his incarnation. Everything about Jesus declares in the name of God that sin is vulnerable. To the gospel's beauty. What is Jesus' name? The angel says to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry is God's announcement that sin will not have the last word or the final saying. And Jesus knows that, and he understands the vulnerability of sin. He knows who he is, and he knows what he's come to do, and he understands the vulnerability of sin better than we do, and he knows it's vulnerable to his gospel's beauty. And I believe it's utterly crucial for us to see that Jesus anchors everything he says about sin to his disciples in this illustration he gives in verses 12 and 13. He tells this story, and this story we're going to see over the coming weeks about this shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray. This story is a bridge in the flow of Matthew 18. It's a bridge that looks backwards to what we've looked at from verse 1. and and it also looks forward to what we're going to see about forgiveness and our relationships horizontally in the church. But this story that Jesus tells is a beautiful story in verses 12 through 13. And why does he tell it? He tells it because it illustrates. It's his story, and it's our story, and it is the most beautiful story you will ever read. Listen to it. What do you think, verse 12, if a man has a hundred sheep... So he's a shepherd. And one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains? On the mountains, you notice that? So the picture is they're not... The 99, uh, he's rushed off to find the one. He hasn't put the 99 in a fold somewhere. They're not sheltered. That's amazing. I read a commentator whose whole premise of this uh, this week it just drove me bananas. I hate it when they do this kind of stuff. Oh, the reason he left is because he had safely kept the 99 in the fold. Well, then why does it, then the fold is as big as multiple mountains? That doesn't make sense. No, what's happened is this shepherd has noticed, he knows his flock so well, he's noticed that one of them has gone astray. And what does he do? He hightails it after that sheep he goes in search of the one that went astray. And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You know, this is the greatest hero story. This is the greatest rescue story. This is the greatest love story you'll ever read because this is Jesus' story, friends. He's telling his own story. He's narrating who he is and what he's come to do and why he's come to do it. Look at how remarkable this shepherd is that Jesus sees here, friends. It is absolutely stunning. And he's anchoring everything he says about sin and its danger and our vulnerability to it. in this story, this story is our hope because this story is Jesus describing what he has come to do when only one of the sheep has gone astray. Only one, each one matters to him. He does not cut his losses and say, well, I got 99. But he embarks on a rescue mission for which he is willing to risk everything. Do you see that? Willing to risk everything. He leaves the 99 exposed. He's willing to risk everything. He's, he is so opposed to the lossness of even one of the sheep. He is unwilling to settle for that lostness, unwilling to settle for that single sheep not being part of the flock. And the reason for the sheep's lostness doesn't matter. It doesn't impede or slow the shepherd down whatsoever that the the going astray was the sheep's fault. That doesn't impede the shepherd. I want you to see that. He doesn't say, well, that's one of my better sheep. I need to go get him. By definition, that's not one of his better sheep. He goes after him. He opposes the lostness of that sheep. And the energy that propels him is not anger. It's not anger, friends. If it was anger, if he was just angry at the sheep, he'd let the sheep die. He wouldn't go after the sheep, but he goes after the sheep. And how is he going to find the wayward sheep? How is this shepherd going to find the sheep? Think about it. What's he going to have to do? He's going to have to become sheepish. He's going to have to think like a sheep. He's going to have to look at the world through the eyes of a sheep. He's going to have to think to the beginning of the sermon. He's going to have to identify with the sheep. And then what's he going to do? Is he just going to airmail in a set of instructions to the sheep for how the sheep can find his own way out? No, what happens is this shepherd who has followed his heart after the sheep and has become sheepish, is going to have to follow his heart into his sheep's lostness because that's where the sheep is. He's going to have to enter into the very lostness of that sheep in order to pull that sheep and rescue that sheep out of there. Friends, that's Jesus' story. The shepherd, the great shepherd of the... This is the gospel. We're in the non-fiction isle of the universe, friends. And in the non-fiction isle of the universe, when we live there, what God tells us reality is about is the great shepherd of the sheep coming coming to rescue, coming to save. He's the greatest hero. It's the greatest rescue story. And he does it by identifying with his lost sheep out of his affection for them and triumphing in that rescue by entering their lostness on their behalf to extricate them from their lostness. Jesus is this shepherd, friends, He is the one who has come. He is the one who has spared no expense in the rescue of his sheep to rescue his sheep from their sin and lostness. And friends, we are the sheep that Jesus is talking about here. We are the ones for whom he has spent everything to deliver us. We are the ones upon whom he set his affection. We are the ones whose lostness he was willing to identify himself with completely. We are the ones he followed his heart after. Now, friends, we have to fight sin, and we have to show hostility to sin. How and why should you do it with that true story? Because you know what every temptation is? All temptation is narration, It's an attempt to tell you a different story, a false story. And so the way you combat and the way you fight the lies of the false story are with the truth of the true story. You've got to remember the story you're actually in, brothers and sisters. You have to keep telling yourself that you, in the gospel, sin will tell you that the gospel is the fiction aisle of the universe, but you tell sin to stick it. Because the gospel is the non-fiction aisle of the universe, and temptation is the fiction aisle. And you come back in the power of this true story, and you remember. You keep remembering, putting together. Because life is going to dismember this story, and and it's going to it's going to break up and try to break the connection between the details in your in your heart and in your mind. And you're going to have to constantly, by faith. Bring back the details of this story. This is the greatest hero you will ever meet. Jesus has come. He, he will save his people from their sins. And this is the greatest rescue story. That's your story. And this is the greatest love story because you're his people. You belong to him. He set his affection upon you. He's identified with you. Friends, why would you ever go back to the wilderness and the wolves if that shepherd had come for you? and pulled you out of that dangerous place. Why, why would the very things that cost this shepherd everything ever be attractive to you? The only way they ever can is if you forget them. So keep remembering this story We belong to him and he belongs to us. He is ours and we are his. And he takes us as his own even when he finds us in our sin. And friends, sin will fall to the beauty of that story. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. How we pray that that the bracing wonder of your rescue could be felt again by our hearts because we know that it is the truth we so often do not feel it as the truth Help us for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.